0: chapter 1, and continue looking at the things that God wants us to learn from this book. Revelation chapter 1, we're going to be starting at verse 4 this morning, reading down through verse 8. We call this the salutation of John, or the salutation of the book of Revelation. Last week we looked at the introduction in the first three verses, and so today we're going to take verses 4 through 8. So if you found that, let's just follow along as I read. Revelation 1, starting at verse 4. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you and peace from him which is and which was and which is to come, and from the seven spirits which are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth. Unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him, and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so, amen. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and ending, saith the Lord which is, and which was, and which is to come, the Almighty. We'll stop there for this morning. Let's have a word of prayer before we look at our message this morning. Our Lord God and Father, again, we come before you as your people and submit ourselves to your authority and to your word. Lord, we know that your word is truth. You've told us that it goes forth and it will accomplish the work that you have assigned it to, that it's like a sharp two-edged sword that pierces into our soul and into our spirit to reveal what we are. And Lord, today as we study your word together, may you work in each one of us by your spirit. I pray that you would help us and give us understanding of these words that we are about to look at. And Father, we want that you your message would be preached. We want you to be glorified during this time. I pray that you would use me to speak your truth. Lord, just strengthen me. Give me your spirit and fullness so that I might be bold in preaching your word, but that we might hear from you and not from me. So, Lord, just use this time to accomplish your work. Challenge each one of us, we pray. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As we continue on in Revelation chapter 1, Uh, Again, last week we were looking at the introduction to the book of Revelation and we saw that Revelation is not a book that's going to hide things, it's something that's going to reveal things to us. And although it reveals to us a lot of events of the end times, it reveals to us the main subject of Jesus Christ. It is Jesus Christ in his exalted state. And so, (coughs) excuse me. As we continue on looking at Revelation, we have to remember that specific point, that this book is all about Jesus Christ. And it's not the Jesus that we saw on earth, the man, the servant, the the Savior. He is the Savior, but that submissive Savior. Revelation presents to us the exalted Jesus as king, as judge, as Lord of lords. Okay, and we're going to get a picture of that next week. But John here gives us this salutation, of uh, or we can actually call it a benediction as he continues into this book. Normally, and even in our services, we have a benediction at the end where we praise the Lord and we pray for each other. And John here actually does it right here at the beginning. And so as we look at this benediction or this salutation of John, we're going to break down some of these verses just to see exactly what truth he's sharing with us because he starts with this prayer and he says in verse 4, John to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be to you and peace from him which is and which was and which is to come. And So we're going to look at these blessings of grace and peace that John gives in his prayer or his benediction for the church. So as we begin, obviously, we want to identify who's talking here, and we looked at this a little bit last time, and he starts by identifying himself. Now, this is interesting because at least four times in the book of Revelation, John says he calls himself by name. If you go back into the gospel of John, you never see John identify himself by name, either as the author or when he talks about himself. In fact, there's a once when he refers to himself as that disciple which Jesus loved. So it was very generic. But here he identifies himself by name, John. And he says, John to the seven churches which are in Asia. We know who wrote this book. This is John, the son of Zebedee, one of the 12 disciples. Now he's in the island of Patmos, who's in kind of house arrest, been put there by um, Rome, because of his preaching of the gospel, they see him as a threat. So they want to get him out of the mainstream and put him out of the way. And so this is where he's writing from, which is uh, in Patmos, which is a small island in the Aegean Sea between what we call Turkey now and Greece. So this is where John is writing from. And he says, I'm writing to the seven churches which are in Asia. Now, if you look at a map, what you'll see, and I'll try to represent it this way, I'll have to do it this way so you see it the right way. Okay, Turkey juts out, and then between Turkey and Greece over here, it's it's like this, is the Aegean Sea. Patmos was a little island that sat right off the coast of what we call Turkey. Back then it was known as Asia Minor. When he talks about these seven churches, and he names them in chapters 2 and 3, and he goes in order, Ephesus, Pergamum, Smyrna, Thyatira, Sardis, Uh, Philadelphia and then Laodicea and there's a reason that he does them in this order because he's going to give them specific instructions about each church in the coming chapters but as you look at the map Patmos is down here and then as you go to land there's a trade route that goes up through Asia Minor and it starts with Ephesus and then goes up around and then down in an arc in the order of these cities so it's not just a random order that he picks. He actually writes to them in the order that they would actually receive this letter, okay? So he's writing to these seven churches. But there's a lot more than seven churches in Asia Minor, and there's a lot more than seven churches at this time in the world of, of, of the Middle East, okay? So it's not just to these seven churches. What this begins for us is to see this number seven, and you'll see this number seven appear all through the book of Revelation. In fact, we could call the book of Revelation the book of sevens, because there's all kinds of sevens that are mentioned. In fact, there's two sevens that are mentioned just in this passage we read this morning. The seven churches represent all churches, not just all churches that existed at that time, but all churches that existed throughout all time, throughout the church age. And the number seven is the number of completeness or fullness in Scripture. So when John writes, he's not writing specifically to these churches, although he, he uh, uh, points out specific things in each of these churches. But these problems and these good things that he points out in chapters 2 and 3 actually are representative of all churches throughout the church age. And each one of these churches can actually represent a period in the church age that characterized the church at that time. We'll see that as we go through chapters 2 and 3. So as we look at this, he's not writing to just these seven specific churches. These seven churches actually were in areas in Turkey or in Asia Minor at this point that were main communication centers. If you want to call them postal regions, think of the post office, okay? These seven cities represented the centers of communication areas where if you got information to one of these cities, it would be spread to neighboring communities very quickly. And so John writes to these seven churches as the center of communication for each of their areas, and then that news would be spread to other nearby churches. So eventually this would reach all the churches that uh, were in this area. So when he talks about the seven churches, this is what he's talking about. This is not a letter to the specific seven churches. It's to all of us, to all churches throughout the church age. And as he begins this benediction or this salutation, he says, Grace be unto you and peace. Now remember back in verse 3, jump back to verse 3 again, and we talked about in the introduction, this is the only book in the Bible that gives us a blessing to those who will read and will hear and we'll seek those things that are written in, or keep those things that are written in it. Here are two of those blessings. He says, Grace and peace be to you. So, Paul or, or John is introducing this book with there's a blessing attached to it. Now, right away, I'm going to start praying that you receive some of these blessings. And the blessings start with grace and peace. So grace and peace are the promised blessings to all that read and listen and keep the words of this book. Now, put yourself in John's time frame, because this is, again, about 90, 92 A.D., about 60 years after Christ died and ascended to heaven, was raised and ascended. And this is after 70 A.D., when Rome came in and destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, scattered and killed everybody that was basically in that city and in the surrounding areas, both Jews and Christians. And at this point in time, Rome did not really recognize a big difference between Jews and Christians. They looked at Christianity as just a Jewish sect of people that were following this guy, and they called him Christus. Okay? It was the Latin word for Christ. They thought Christus, this Jesus Christ, was just kind of a rebel, in the model of some of the other radicals that had stirred up rebellions in the past. And so this group of Christians was just another sect of Jews that was trying to kind of go their own way, and eventually they would start fighting and start to defect from the Roman government. And so they were trying to put them down. But it was the Jewish people as a whole that the Jews were, or that the Romans were focused on here. So the persecution for both Jews and Christians was extremely high at this point. Um, Josephus tells us that when Rome came in and destroyed Jerusalem, that soldier, Roman soldiers, in their duties after days and literally weeks of going around killing everybody that they saw, got so tired of the killing that they went to their superiors and said, What, what, what can we do? We're just worn out, just killing everybody. This is ridiculous. And so the Jewish the I'm sorry, the Roman authorities responded to them and said, well, here's what we're going to do. Basically, anybody that has taken up arms against us, we're going to kill them. We don't want them around. Anybody that looks like they may be a rebel or ready to take up arms, we'll get rid of them too. He said, if there's people that have not been engaged in these rebellions, you know, strong women or men that are middle-aged or whatever, we'll capture them. We'll sell them into slavery. We'll make some money off of this. The elderly, the weak, the sickly, just kill them because there's no use for them. Younger children, and from about 10 up to about 18, we'll keep them and we'll retrain them. We'll bring them back to Rome and as slaves and servants of the, of the empire. And we'll basically re, um, we'll brainwash them or retrain them to become Romans. And so they can serve the Roman Empire. Okay, so this alleviated some of the Roman soldiers' responsibility to kill everybody. But you can see, I mean, if if our congregation was part of this time frame, how much in danger many of us would be, all of us would be. And so John is writing to churches who are undergoing this amount of persecution in the Roman Empire at this time. And he starts this letter by saying, grace and peace be to you. This was not a peaceful time. But he says, you can find peace, the blessing of peace, in our Lord. I'm praying for you to have peace. What's interesting is that this phrase about grace or this prayer for grace only happens here and at the very end. When John closes the book, he says, may the grace and peace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Or may may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. These are the only two places that you see this word grace applied like this or prayed for. And yet John bookends the entire book of Revelation with this prayer of blessings of grace for his listeners, for those who are trusting Christ. You notice also that he puts grace first. And I believe he does that because you can't have peace without the grace of God. Peace only comes if you first are recipients of the grace of God. One of the greatest desires of people in our world is to have peace. I mean, you've heard this all the way back, probably if you grew up in the 60s and 70s, everybody was about world peace, world peace, right? Okay. Well, I'm sure most people don't want war. We don't want to have to suffer all of this war and all of this... um, the trial of, of seeing all these people fighting against each other. We want peace. That's what most people will agree on. And yet, the Bible as a whole, the message is peace can be had, but it can only be had through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so you can't have peace without grace. But they go together. You must have God's grace. You must receive God's grace before you can have peace. And it doesn't depend on your circumstances, these people were suffering. They were being killed. They were being persecuted. And John still says, you can find peace through the grace of our Lord. So he prays for them that they would receive these blessings of grace and peace that only come from God. And then he says, here's the origin of this grace and peace. Here's where you're going to find it or where it's going to come from. He says, grace and peace be unto you, or grace be unto you and peace from him which is which is which was and which is to come and from the seven spirits which are before his throne and from Jesus Christ who is the faithful witness the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth grace and peace come from god alone and here john makes sure everybody understands that when he talks about grace and peace coming from god it's from all three persons of the godhead It's what we would call a a Trinitarian prayer, a reference to the triune God. And he starts and he says, the grace first comes from God the Father. He says, from him who was and is and is to come. Now, you look at that phrase that he uses here, from him which is and which was and which is to come, and that encompasses all time. Now, there's only one that we know that was before time that exists During time that will exist into the future of time. In fact, God exists outside of time. Time exists in Him, and so John refers to God the Father here, and He says the Eternal One. If you go back and remember Moses, when God came to Moses, and He was out in the desert, the burning bush, and Moses says, "What's going on here? You know, who is this? Who do I tell the people that I've seen?" And God says, you tell them, I am that I am sent you. I am. It was that name Jehovah, Yahweh, the self-existent one. And so that's what John is referring to here when he says the one who was or one who is and was and is to come. It's that one who's existed through eternity. God the Father Now, some people will say, well, no, because it uses this phrase again, and so it has to be referring to Jesus Christ. I would have to disagree, because here he's talking about the Father. In the middle, he talks about the Holy Spirit, obviously, and then he names Jesus Christ specifically at the end. So he's incorporating all three entities and all three persons of the Trinity here. And he says, from him who was and is, or from who is and was and is to come. And this grace and peace can only come from God the Father. Now, James chapter 1, verse 17 tells us that every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. And so this blessing of grace and peace, as it comes from God, can only come to those people who, number one, believe that he is, as Hebrews 6 tells us. We must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Those are the rewards that God wants to give us, the blessings that come to those who believe in God, that we have this grace and peace. Now, the question then is, if God wants to give us this grace and peace so much, especially as believers, how come we don't have it? How come we don't live in grace? How come we don't have peace in our lives? And if you look at the world around us, obviously there is no grace and peace in the world apart from God. You can see it every day. But what about believers? How come we don't always experience that grace and have it overflowing in our life? How come we don't have that peace that passes all understanding? And I think the reason is because we don't seek God. Hebrews 11.6 tells us that if we are going to believe in God, we must believe that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. It's not someone who is just going to acknowledge God and say, Okay, God, yeah, I realize that you exist. I believe that you are there. It's someone who's going to diligently seek him. So those who are truly saved will be seekers. Last week, we looked at the recipients of this message. It's those who are bondservants, those who have chosen to give their lives in service because of love for the Master. And so here is the echo when John says grace and peace from God the Father, from him who was, is and was and is to come. It's those people who not just believe that he exists, but that he is truly their God and they must diligently seek him. And that's why we, I think we're lacking those things in our lives so many times is because we don't diligently seek him. We seek everything else and we want to add God to our lives here and there to kind of even out the balance. And that's not what a true believer is all about. So here's an important part of this description. When John says, him who is and was and is to come, God's the same. You look back at the beginning of creation, God's the same there as he is now. You look a million years into our future, God's going to be the same there as he is now. God never changes. And therefore, the grace and peace that he gives us will never change. It's the same thing we know for certain what he promises us and that he promises it to us if we will just diligently seek him. He's not going to go back on that promise. He's not going to change what we receive. We can be guaranteed of what God wants to give us in these blessings. Grace from him and grace being defined again as all those things that he gives us that we don't deserve. Every good thing comes from God, as I just read. Now, the question is asked so many times, and people say this, you know, how could a good God allow bad things to happen to good people? That's the wrong question. Because when you look at it from the perspective of Scripture, how could a good God allow good things to happen to bad people? Because of his grace. He shows his grace to us over and over and over. We just don't want to see it. Why? Because we don't want what God has to offer. We want what we want. And so instead of seeking God diligently, we seek God for ourselves diligently. But God doesn't change. His grace and peace are going to be the same for us. They're always available. We just don't avail ourselves of them because we don't seek God the way we should. So God's grace will always be the same. The peace that he offers will always be available to those who trust him and seek him diligently with their lives. So there's the Father, and then in the next phrase, in verse 4, he goes on and he says, and, um, and from the seven spirits which are before his throne. Now, that's an interesting phrase, because as far as I know, as far as I've studied, there's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. There's only one Holy Spirit, right? And yet here, John says, from the seven spirits. So what seven spirits is he talking about here? Well, here again, we have this number seven that you'll see pop up all through Revelation. Seven is the number of completion or fullness. And so when John talks about the seven spirits of God, he's talking about the complete work and ministry of the Holy Spirit. You say, well, why did he choose seven? Why didn't he just say the full ministry or the Holy Spirit in fullness? Go to Isaiah chapter 11 for me real quickly, if you want to turn back to that. Isaiah chapter 11. See, what we're finding out, and hopefully that you're figuring out by now, is a lot of these questions that come up in Scripture, you can answer with Scripture. you just got to know where to look. So we can answer the seven spirits by going to Isaiah chapter 11. And verse 2. Isaiah, I'm in Isaiah chapter 10, that's why it didn't look right. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2, and it says, And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. This is a prophetic passage talking about Christ. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. Now, how many spirits did he just mention there? Spirit of the Lord is one. The spirit of wisdom is two. The spirit of understanding is three. The spirit of counsel is four. The spirit of might is five. The spirit of knowledge is six. And the spirit of the fear of the Lord is seven. The full ministry of the Holy Spirit. So when we see this phrase in Revelation, when it talks about the seven spirits, it's talking about the fullness of the Holy Spirit in his ministry to us. It's the number of completion. Now, you'll see this phrase, the seven spirits of God, all through Revelation. It happens in Revelation chapter 3, verse 5. These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God. Revelation chapter 4, verse 5. And out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices, and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Revelation chapter 5, verse 6. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. So when we see seven spirits, we're not talking about seven different spirits. We're talking about the fullness of the Holy Spirit. It is the Spirit of God represented by this number of completion. In fact, in Zechariah chapter 4 Zechariah the prophet has a vision of a lampstand. You've seen the Jewish menorah with the seven arms that come out of the lamp. okay? And then there's seven lights at each top. Zechariah has this vision of a giant lampstand like this. And on top of it, there's this bowl of oil. And then there's pipes that come out from that bowl to each one of those lights. And none of them ever go out. And Zechariah turns to the angel that's given him this vision. He says, I don't understand this. And then in an explanation of that lampstand with the seven lights the angel says a verse which you probably recognize. He says, "Then answered and spake unto me saying, This is the word of the Lord unto his rubble saying, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit saith the Lord." That was the explanation of that seven-armed light. The power of the spirit of God that will never cease. And so when we see this seven Spirits, he's talking about the Holy Spirit. And he says grace and peace come from the Father, but they also come through the Holy Spirit. That's part of the Spirit's ministry in our lives, is to give us grace and peace as we trust in him. The Spirit teaches us, he comforts us, he convicts us, he leads us, he exhorts us, he seals us. And he gives us this grace and peace. And so God's grace is made known to us through the ministry of God's Spirit in our lives. Again, the question, why don't we experience grace and peace all the time like we should as Christians? Do we listen to and submit ourselves to the Spirit of God all the time? No. We choose our own way. We choose our own terms. We want things for ourselves, And when we do that, we're basically saying, God, I'm going to put you over here for a minute because i got some things I want to do. And it's at those times in our lives when we don't have grace and peace because we don't have the Spirit ruling or we're not filled with him at that point. So it's not just at salvation that peace becomes the pattern of the believer's life. When we live understanding the ministry of the Holy Spirit to us, submitting to his work in us, that grace and peace becomes so much more prevalent. That becomes the pattern of the Christian life. Now, on this earth, it's never going to be perfect, but we can continue to grow in grace and peace as we trust the Lord and as we submit to his spirit. So the Holy Spirit's ministry within our lives brings both grace and peace from God. And then he goes on, he says, and from Jesus Christ. Here's the third person of the Trinity. And he goes on and he actually describes Jesus Christ over the next couple of verses in much more detail than he did for either the Father or the Son. Why? Why? Well, we just said, what is this book about? Jesus Christ. John is being revealed in this vision from God, Jesus Christ, the exalted Savior. And so he gives all of this this more detail about Jesus Christ. When he says at the end of verse 2 and from Jesus, I'm sorry, at the end of verse 4, beginning of verse 5, I'm sorry, I've got my verses mixed up here. From the beginning of verse 5, he says, and from Jesus Christ. And then he goes on through the rest of verse 5, and verse 6, and verse 7, and verse 8, talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. But what does he say? The first phrase he says, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness. See, Christ is God's appointed witness to mankind to testify of God's truth, and God's goodness, and God's grace, and the peace that comes by believing in him. He's the faithful witness to these things. And not only did he tell it and teach it, but he lived it. And now he gives it as well. So as a faithful witness, we can be sure that every word that Jesus spoke is absolutely true. He never said anything that was misleading or wrong. So we can trust absolutely 100% every word that Jesus spoke is absolutely true. He's the faithful witness. His testimony about himself, his testimony about the Father, his testimony about the Holy Spirit, his testimony about the blessings that come in following him, his testimony about what's going to happen in suffering and persecution to those who follow him. All of it is absolutely true. So he is the faithful witness. And then he uses this phrase, the first begotten of the dead. Now, if we look back, even in just the Bible, Jesus actually wasn't the first one to be raised from the dead. If you go back into the Old Testament, Elijah raised a widow's son. There's many people who were raised from the dead. Before Jesus died, he raised Lazarus from the dead. So he's not the first, but he doesn't say the first from the dead. He says the first begotten from the dead. It carries a more significance to it. He's basically saying Jesus being raised from the dead, that was the most important one. That was the one that meant something more than just somebody coming back to life. And so we know from this phrase, number one, Jesus did die a physical death. And in a sense, he died a spiritual death in that he took our sin, carried it upon himself, and was separated from God for a short time. On the cross, remember, he said, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? So he's, he's experienced the death that we should have had. So we know that's true, just from this phrase. But it's his resurrection that's the key to coming back to life, to having everlasting life. Is Lazarus still alive walking on the earth? He's dead, physically. Okay, Jesus raised him from the dead, but he died again. Every other person that was raised from the dead died again physically, except Jesus Christ. When he came back to life, that was it. He will not die again. So he will never experience death again. And that's the model that he has for us as believers. We will never again have to experience death, either physical or spiritual, because Jesus has life in him. So John calls him the first begotten of the dead. Paul says this same thing in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20. He says, but now is Christ risen from the dead and become the fruits of them that slept. The first fruits, the first of the harvest. Now I explained this, I think in Bible study, or maybe we explained it here, I think I did in church. The first fruits was that harvest where they would go and pick the first ripe grain and they would test it. To see the quality of the whole crop. And if that grain was good, that very first harvest pickings of it, then the rest of it would be a good crop. And so Christ is that sampling, if you will, of what we all are going to experience at the resurrection. He's the first fruits of the dead, or the first begotten of the dead. And John uses this third phrase. He says, the prince of the kings of the earth. Later in this book, John calls him the king of kings and lord of lords. And this has to do with his absolute authority over all earthly kingdoms. He is the king of kings and lord of lords. And he will rule over all rulers on this earth. Now, we discovered this a little bit in our study of Daniel, because in Daniel chapter 2, Daniel wants to receive the interpretation of the vision that Nebuchadnezzar has. And so he goes to his three friends and he says, let's pray. We need to pray that God will reveal this to me. And God gives him the vision of the dream that Nebuchadnezzar has and the interpretation. And the first thing Daniel does after he receives this answer It says in Daniel chapter 2, verses 20 and 21, Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his. He changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom unto the wise and knowledge to them that know understanding. Daniel understood that leadership, all rulers on this earth, are basically ordained and set in place by God and taken out by God. In fact, when he goes to Nebuchadnezzar and he explains the dream, he says, you know what, what you've asked is is impossible for any man, but God who, who rules over this earth, the God who gave you this kingdom, who takes kings and puts them up and takes kings and sets them down, he's the one who has the answer to this. And John here is echoing that same sentiment. It's Jesus Christ who sets up kings, who takes down kings, who basically ordains everything that is in government today. There you go, I don't see how God could ordain all of this evil that we see in our governments all around the world. Forget about our own country. Look outside. Well, God called Nebuchadnezzar his instrument. And he actually said, I will strengthen his sword and I will give him my hand to execute judgment upon my people. So God uses even what we would be considered uh, evil people to carry out his judgment. He sets up kings. He brings down kings. He ordains all rulers because he is the king of kings and lord of lords. That's the phrase that John ascribes to Jesus Christ. And so the blessings of grace and peace that we see in the prayer are delivered by the triune God to those who will read, And we'll listen, that means pay attention to, and keep, that means obey, the words of this book. And it's given to us by God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Now, at this point, in the middle of verse 5, you see a period. And then he goes into this doxology of praise, is what it is, basically. This is the benediction, the doxology. He says, Unto him, unto who? Unto Jesus Christ. Unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and has made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him. And they also which pierced him, and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so, amen. Amen. And then in verse 8, he quotes Christ. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and ending, saith the Lord, which is, which was, and which is to come, the Almighty. So as he gets done praying this prayer of grace and peace from God the Father, God the Spirit, God the Son, to the recipients of this book, he just breaks out in this doxology of praise to the Lord Jesus Christ. Unto him be glory and honor. Now, remember, he starts this doxology, look at the first phrase, unto him that what? Loved us. Unto him that loved us. Keep in perspective who's writing this. Remember, it was John, the apostle, who gave us John 3.16. For God so loved the world. John focuses on the love of Jesus Christ for us. When you go to 1 John, the entire book of 1 John focuses on what true love is and how God loved us first. And because God loved us first, now we can love him back. We love him because he first loved us. That came from this John. John referred to himself, that disciple whom Jesus loved. So the love of God is kind of a huge part of, of his understanding of the Lord at this point he saw the love of Jesus Christ probably more clearly than many of the other disciples did in his lifetime and so he starts with his doxology says unto him that loved us and then he explains and he gives us the gospel honestly right here in this doxology unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and made us kings and priests unto God his father to him be glory and dominion forever and ever amen What did he do because he loved us? He died on the cross. Now, this phrase that he uses, washed us from our sins. Let me give you a little language lesson for just a minute, okay? In the King James, we read the word washed. If you have another version, you probably have the word loosed or freed, okay? And the question may come up, why the difference why do, why do different translations use different words? Some of it's just for clarity. This one actually has an interesting story behind it, so I'm going to take a minute and share it with you. The Greek word that was used in the King James Version is the Greek word lauo, which means washed or cleansed. In other translations... They used a different text or a different manuscript that was older, and the Greek word in those manuscripts is luo. Now, you probably didn't hear a great difference in that. The first one is loo. The second one is luo. Okay? Now, let me tell you what happened, because it's actually been recorded what happened. The reason for this difference in translation is that most of the early manuscripts of this part of Scripture date between 220 A.D. and 700 A.D., So we have all of these, about eight or nine manuscripts that they have that are clearly this word luo, the shorter version of the Greek word. The King James translator used newer manuscripts that were made basically after 800 A.D. Around 331 A.D., here's your history lesson, Constantine basically made Christianity the the state religion. Okay, So Christianity was now accepted. As part of that, he ordered that 50 copies of the scriptures be made. And at this time, 331 A.D., the only way to make multiple copies of the same literature or the same piece of of writing was to have what they called a scriptorium, where they would get the best of the scribes who would come and they would sit kind of in an auditorium like this. And they would each have a desk, they would each have parchment, they would each have a pen, And then they would have someone who is a very good orator who would stand at the front like this and read the manuscript from the original. And as he read very carefully, clearly, and slowly, the scribes would copy down those words. And when he was done, you would have 50 copies of the original. What happened is that it's very easy for scribes in hearing this word to confuse one for the other. And so all 50 of these copies, instead of the word luo, they all came out with the word loo, which is washed. That's the transcripts that King James translators used, and so they got washed from it. The other versions used an earlier transcript, luo, which means loosed or made free from. So if you look at the earliest transcripts, probably one of the best ways to read this then is Christ has made us free. He set us free from our sins. Now there's much more meaning behind that. It doesn't make washed from our sins wrong. It just has a lot more meaning when you say Christ has freed us from our sins than just Christ has washed us from sins. If you are washed, how many, I won't ask, that might embarrass somebody, okay? I hope all of you took a shower today or yesterday or sometime in the near past, okay? Anyway, when you wash, you wash yourself from dirt. Your body becomes clean, hopefully, okay? Some of my kids took a while for them to understand that was the purpose of a bath or a shower. But anyway, that's the purpose, to wash yourself from dirt. Now, if you took a shower today, does that mean that you will stay clean for the rest of your life and you never have to take another shower again? I hope you don't believe that. I think the people sitting next to you hope you don't believe that, okay? If you are freed from something, that's permanent. And so the word freed here carries a more permanent weight of what Christ did for us in salvation. He has freed us from the bondage of sin. We are no longer in bondage to sin. We do not have to go back there. It does not control us anymore and is no longer our master. And that's this word, luo, in the Greek. And that's the word that John wrote here in the original when he says, Christ has freed us from our sins. We are made free in him. That's the love that Jesus showed us. So Christ has freed us from our sins, not just washed us. We are cleansed. Now, just one more note in that regard. If you, I don't know if you want to argue that point, but if you want to argue that point, some people who are are very dedicated to the King James translation will say, well, you know, that's the word that's there. Well, if you look in Scripture all the way through the New Testament, there are several references to us being cleansed from our sins or being purged from our sins. There's three or four other Greek words that mean cleansing or purging. Nowhere else in the New Testament does it use this word luo, I'm not going to say it right, luo, to talk about being washed. It uses all the other words to talk about being cleansed from sin, but washed, but never is this word luo used to indicate a washing from sin. It's always, the word luo is used several times to say that we are freed from sin. And so I think that That substance, just understanding the difference between being washed and being freed, gives us so much more confidence in what God has done for us. And again, it's not something that has to be repeated. When God washed us, when Christ washed us or freed us, it was a permanent thing. It doesn't have to be done over again to free us from sin. He goes on and he says, I'm going to try to get through this quickly. He says, he has made us kings and priests unto God and his Father, and here again, we have a different translation between different versions. The word kings is the Greek word for royalty. But there's another form of the Greek word that, again, in transcribing these, it's a very, very small difference. But the actual Greek says that um, the phrase in Greek reads, he made us a realm or a kingdom priest to God. And that same sentiment is actually echoed in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, when he says, But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, that's a kingdom, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So what John is saying here is that he has made us a kingdom or a realm of priests to God. Now, if you look at the Old Testament picture of a priest, they were the ones who would intervene for the people in making sacrifices. They would go to the altar and present the sacrifices and sprinkle the blood on the altar and pray that God would forgive the sins of the people. They were called the mediator. Well, as we get into the New Testament, we see in Timothy that is said, Paul says to Timothy, we have one mediator now, the man Christ Jesus. He's the only one we need. He's gone before God and presented all of us who believe in him as righteous. That's his job. And so when Satan comes to God and says, see, that person he sins, Christ literally goes to the Father and says, I've already paid for that in my death on the cross. That's his job as mediator. And in doing that, now he has ripped the veil literally and figuratively for our, our, our access into the presence of God. And so um, John says here, just as Peter does, we are made a priesthood. We all now can enter directly into the presence of God because of our mediator and bring our petitions before him and worship him directly. We don't need someone to intervene. We have direct access to the Lord. And then also priests dedicated their lives to service. And they didn't have a choice about it. If you were born in the line of Aaron and you were in that, that uh, priestly line, your job for life was to serve in the temple. You didn't get another job. You didn't get a choice about it. But it was a privilege. It was something special to be in that priestly line in the Old Testament. And that's what John's saying to us here. We have the privilege of Christ appointing us as priests, as a priesthood, as the church, to serve him with our lives. We don't have any other purpose but to serve Jesus Christ. And so he says, He has made us a kingdom of priests unto God and the Father. And then he says, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Why did Christ do this for us? Why did he love us? Why did he free us from our sins? Why did he put us in this place of direct access with God the Father? For his own glory. Now, we don't have to give him glory. The glory belongs to him. And in your, in your Bibles, if you read where it says, to him be, probably that word be is in italics. That means it was added for clarity. The original says to him glory and dominion and forever and ever. That means it already belongs to him. We don't give it to him. We proclaim his glory. We acknowledge his glory. We should reflect his glory, but we can't give God the glory. It already belongs to him. And dominion, that's his authority. Where does he get his authority? From the fact that he is God. And then he says, Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him. And they also which pierced him, and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so, amen. So John says he's coming back. Now, I want to make one thing clear, and we'll see this as we go through Revelation. This is not the rapture. Because he says, He cometh with the clouds, and every eye shall see him. At the rapture, every eye is not going to see him. It's going to be as a thief in the night. It's going to happen like that, and nobody's going to know what happened. There's going to be a whole lot of people on earth who's going to stand around going, what just took place? This is the second coming of Christ, because when Christ comes back to the earth from the clouds, and this says with the clouds, he's going to come to the Mount of Olives, and when he comes to the Mount of Olives, that's when in Romans 11, Paul says all Israel is going to be saved. Israel is going to be under such persecution during the end of the tribulation at this point. The Antichrist and his armies are going to be on a, a uh, mission to destroy all Jews, period. And all Christians. And the Jews are all going to be holed up and trying to hide and they're finally going to call out to God and say, please send the Messiah now. And when Jesus Christ comes back, they're going to recognize him. And then the Bible tells us he's going to march from the, from the area of Petra, which is in Jordan. And he's going to go right up through the valley all the way to the city of Jerusalem. And it's going to be as if he's treading out the wine press. And that's the blood of his enemies. That's what John's referring to here. It's that final battle when Christ destroys his enemies right before he sets up his millennial kingdom on earth. And it says, every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him. That was the Jews. They're going to recognize him, as the Messiah. And it says, all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Why? Because he died? No. Because they rejected him, and now they have to face the judgment. So this is the second coming of Christ that John refers to at the end of the tribulation. And then he quotes Christ. He says, I'm the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is and was and which is to come, the Almighty. And it's interesting that he's quoting Christ using the same phrase to describe himself that John used to describe God the Father right at the beginning of this passage. There is no doubt that Jesus Christ is God. He finishes with Jesus' words, the Alpha and Omega. And you probably know the Alpha is the first letter in the Greek alphabet. The Omega is the last letter of the Greek alphabet. He's basically saying, and John explains it on the beginning and the end, I am the substance of all things. And I wonder if when John wrote these words, he was thinking of Colossians chapter 1, where Paul wrote, giving thanks unto the Father which hath made us to be Meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who, talking about Jesus Christ, hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature, for by him were all things created that are in heaven, that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things consist. Did you hear the King of Kings in there? Did you hear the Savior in there? This doxology and benediction that John writes to us here tells us that we're about to see the real Christ, how he is now exalted in heaven. He's the one who is our redeemer. He tells us that. He loved us and freed us from our sins. He's the one who gave his life for us. He's the one to whom we owe all of our allegiance and service as priests under him. He's the one who's going to come back and pour out the wrath of God on this earth before he sets up his kingdom on this earth to those who don't believe. And he's the one who is before all things, above all things, and in him all things consist the one who is and was and is to come. So there's no doubt at all that Jesus Christ, who was raised from, heaven, from, raised from earth to heaven by God the Father, is no less than God himself. That's what John is saying here. Jesus Christ is the great I am, the self-existent one, the Jehovah Lord, Yeshua. That's who we're talking about. This is the same one who was that humble man that walked the earth, that gave us all those great teachings, that eventually died and came back to life. And it's from him and through him that we receive the blessings of grace and peace in our life. But you will never have those blessings of grace and peace until you see Jesus Christ as he truly is. You cannot have grace and peace in your life if you think he was just a good man or if you think he was a man who became God, as many false teachers teach. Grace and peace come through this Jesus Christ, this God. You can never receive the blessings of God until you see God as he truly is. And we never really fully worship God until we fully see the God who we worship. Our misguided and made-up versions of Jesus are, won't do. Modern liberalism has tried to give us a Jesus who wasn't really God. They've tried to tell us that Jesus was just a man who became God because he obeyed the Father. There's lots of false, te- false religions that teach that. They've tried to say that he did not really die that he was just swooning, so he didn't really come back to life. That he didn't rise from the dead. He was just a great teacher from whom we can learn valuable lessons. They've tried to tell us that even though Jesus may have become a God, or even if he was God, Jesus doesn't truly require obedience from us and faithfulness and holiness as his people. He kind of gonna starts us up and lets us go. And that we're allowed then to make up our own version of Christianity, our own version of Jesus Christ, our own version of God, our own version of God's wrath and God's reward and God's love, and still be assured of going to heaven. And that's all false teaching. What John tells us here is that this Jesus Christ that we're about to see revealed in the book of Revelation, in all of his glory, And he's going to do that in the rest of the chapter as we'll see next week is the true Jesus Christ. And it's only in him that we find these blessings of grace and peace. And if you do not accept him as fully God, if you do not fully submit to him as your authority both in salvation and in service in the rest of your life, that instead of getting those blessings on earth, not only will you miss those blessings of grace and peace, but you will receive the full weight of God's wrath when it's poured out at the end of time. That's the message of revelation. But in order to understand that, you have to see Jesus Christ as he is. And when we stand before Jesus Christ as he truly is, the one who is, who was, who is to come, the almighty one of heaven, we will fall down on our face at his feet. can't help it. That's the response to seeing God's glory. John did. You'll see that. Isaiah did. Moses did. All through Scripture, anybody who came face to face with the glory of God fell down on their face before Him because they realized they were not worthy to look on the glory of God. That's when we will truly worship God in fullness. This is just a picture of that to get us ready. You can't treat Jesus Christ as just another man or even a lesser version of God. He's the real deal. God in flesh, he was on this earth, the Lord Jesus Christ, exalted Savior now in heaven, our mediator. And we must always worship him as such, starting right here, right now. We can't look at him any other way. We can't worship him any other way. And that's the Jesus that John is going to share with us the rest of this book. And next week is the beginning of that revealing as John sees Christ in his exalted state. But it challenges us. What is our vision of Jesus Christ? What have we tried to make him so that our lives can be what we want them to be? And is that, be, that the reason why we miss the grace and peace of our Lord? Because we're not really seeking out grace and peace. We just want what we want on our own terms. Let's have a word of prayer. Lord, Father, we thank you that you are the God of heaven. We thank you that you've given your Son, Jesus Christ, not only as our Savior, but as our King, as our Lord. And we pray to you as the Almighty Father... As we read this morning, the one who was and is and who is to come. And we ask that you would give us that blessing of grace and peace as we diligently seek you. That you would bestow it upon us through your spirit and through your son, Jesus Christ. That we might not have just a taste of it, but we can truly experience the fullness of the blessing of grace and peace as you promised to us. And the life that you promised to those who believe. Lord, may we always see Jesus as he truly is. He's the faithful witness, the first begotten of the dead, the prince of the kings of the earth. He's the one who loved us, he's the one who freed us from our sins by his own blood. And he has made us a kingdom of priests to you. And we know that to him the glory and dominion belong forever and ever. Thank you. For this picture that we have of him, help us to understand more fully. Help us to worship you more fully because of this revelation. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to close our service this morning with 334. I'm going to ask the guys to join me at the instruments again. 334. The song is Be Thou My Vision. It may be a familiar song to you, may have sung it many times, but have you truly?